Welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Amy Leffringhouse. And I'm your co-host, Erin Garrett. And today we are here with Rachel Curry and Nicole Haverback, and these two perform education and outreach on the Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy for Illinois Extension. Welcome, Rachel, and welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy. So what exactly is that? First, it's really important to understand what exactly is hypoxia and and the dead zone. So an area where there's less than two milligrams per liter of oxygen is what we identify as a dead zone. And that's where there isn't enough available oxygen to support the marine life. And these hypoxic zones or these dead zones are created by algal blooms and they're feeding on the excess nutrients that are entering the water. They're feeding, they're growing, but eventually the season is going to change or they're going to run out of nutrients and they're going to die. And as they die, they're obviously going to decompose and that decomposition uses up the oxygen in the water. And so that's what's taking the oxygen out of the water. This is an ongoing process, right? It's not a static process. And for us, we're looking at the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico. And that is going to vary in size and shape continually. But NOAA goes out and measures that usually about the end of July um, and then publishes the results. So we can see the size and the shape of the hypoxic zone, but that's just a snapshot. The size and shape, it's dependent on a multitude of factors. It's not just the amount of nutrients that are entering the Gulf. You know, it's the weather. And if a hurricane goes through and disrupts the water column, that's going to impact the hypoxic zone. So that's kind of the foundation of what we're doing. When we're talking about the hypoxic zone, hypoxia in general, it's not just something that's happening way down south. That's something that impacts our local water bodies as well. We see algal blooms in our lakes. Those algal blooms impact our ability to use those water bodies for things people enjoy going swimming or fishing or boating. And when we have these algal blooms, it makes those recreational areas um, not usable. But it also impacts our drinking water safety. So even though how this whole process got started was through um, you know, the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico, there are also a lot of local impacts as well. And so that brings me to our nutrient loss reduction strategy. And how it all started was the 12 highest contributing state of these nutrients to the Gulf of Mexico were tasked by the U.S. EPA to create a strategy for their state to reduce nutrient loss. So each state is able to create their own individual strategy, what's going to work best for that state. And since Illinois was the number one contributor of both nitrogen and phosphorus, based on data in a 2008 study modeling nutrient loss, you know, it's very important that Illinois has this nutrient loss reduction strategy, and we work towards reducing the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus leaving our state. So the nutrient loss reduction strategy, or the NLRS, because if you say nutrient loss reduction strategy enough times, you get tongue-tied. Our NLRS was released in July of 2015. And within our NLRS, we're looking at nutrient loss from multiple sources or sectors. It's not just the non-point agriculture sector. We're also looking at point sources and urban stormwater. Mm-hmm. 
And we have an interim goal of reducing nitrogen by 15% and phosphorus by 25% by 2025, which we're in 2023. So like that is right around the corner. Getting close. Yeah, it, it's definitely <laughs> knocking on the door. Um, but we also have an ultimate goal to reduce nitrogen and phosphorus by 45% from the baseline. And also within our NLRS, we identified and by we, I mean the Royal We. It's a partnership effort that's done through Illinois Extension, Illinois Department of Ag, Illinois EPA, as well as a lot of other partner organizations. But in the original report, they identified priority watersheds, whether that was um, for nitrogen, phosphorus, or both. And from those, um, four were selected. So we have two nitrogen priority watersheds and two phosphorus priority watersheds. And from there, Illinois Extension has hired uh, watershed outreach associates for those uh, priority watersheds. And I mentioned this before, but a large part of our strategy is these partnerships. And we have a variety of partner organizations. It's not just ag. We have point source. We have environmental groups. We have, um, you know, industry. We have a large number of partners that are coming together and working towards meeting this common goal. And that is something that is very unique about our NLRS as compared to other states. Other states are seeing the success that we're having with those partnerships and using that as a driving force to help meet our goals. And so they are now trying to implement something similar. How does Illinois Extension fit into that? Like, what is our role as Extension? So Illinois Extension is kind of a, a twofold part of the NLRS. We have our facilitation side of things where we help put together and organize and help lead the different meetings for the different groups that are a part of the NLRS, whether it's the policy working group or the communications, the science team, and as well as leading and organizing the annual conference and the biannual reports. And we also have what we lovingly refer to as the boots on the ground. So that's where Nicole and I come in. Uh, we do a lot of the education outreach about the different conservation practices that are outlined in the NLRS, as well as information about the nutrient loss reduction strategy. You mentioned the four priority watersheds were identified. Where are those located in the state? So the two nitrogen priority watersheds are in the northwestern part of the state uh, because of the amount of pile drainage that we have in the central and northern parts. Nitrogen is highly mobile with water. And so as it's moving through the soil, once it hits the tile drains, if there isn't a best management practice in place to help capture that nitrogen, it's going to be lost to the local water bodies. Phosphorus is a little bit different. Um, Nicole, do you want to talk about the phosphorus priority watersheds? Yeah, so I am based in the two phosphorus priority watersheds, which are located in like the east central, uh, southeastern part of the state. And erosion is more of the issue um, in, in my area of the state. And phosphorus adheres tightly to the soil. So that that is where there's not nearly as much tile drainage here. So so erosion is more of the issue. So you mentioned a little bit, but why was something like this necessary in Illinois in particular? I know you said you were number one. We were number one on the list, which is not good. <laughs> so, it's not something you want to be known for. <laughs> exactly. 
but hey, um, at least we're doing something about it. That's the important part, right? Why did this become a priority and then how does it affect farmers? I know you talked about lots of different potential sources for some of these um, nutrients, but let's start with the farmers um, and just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so excess nutrients can negatively impact water quality and aquatic life, uh, both locally and downstream. Uh, And ultimately, the policy was directed uh, from the U.S. EPA, which Rachel touched on. But it came together as the work of a group called the Gulf Hypoxia Task Force. And they developed and released an action plan where in order to meet what they had determined to to be an acceptable measurement of uh, the dead zone that is located in the Gulf of Mexico, there needed to be nutrient reductions uh, throughout the states that are located within the Mississippi River Basin. So ultimately, the necessity came from trying to primarily voluntarily uh, minimize and reduce the amount of nutrient loads entering our local body, our local water bodies, uh, the Mississippi River, and uh, contributing to the hypoxic zone that is located in the Gulf of Mexico. So like Rachel had also mentioned, uh, the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy identifies three primary uh, source sectors that these nutrients are coming from. So it doesn't all fall within agriculture. Uh, Those sectors are agriculture, point sources, and stormwater. So overall, uh, it impacts a wide variety of people. And we know, like you said, uh, in many years, Illinois is the number one contributor of nitrogen and phosphorus to the Gulf of Mexico. And we know that 82% of the nitrogen that leaves the state of Illinois is from agriculture. And with phosphorus, it's a little bit more of an even split uh, with 48% of the phosphorus that is leaving the state from agriculture and 48 uh, from point sources. But the high levels of phosphorus and nitrogen that are lost from the land or the wastewater facilities is what cause uh, the algal blooms, uh, which can occur locally and impact the quality of the drinking water, as well as compromise the safety of recreational activities. And as previously mentioned, uh, can also contribute to water quality issues downstream, like in the Gulf of Mexico. What, real quick, Nicole, point sources, can you just briefly define what those are, just in case our listeners don't know what that means? Yeah, so point sources would be uh, from those wastewater treatment facilities. Okay. And so you know exactly where it's coming out of the pipe. Right, right. right. You're able to point to the source and say it's coming from here. Right. Thank you. So how does this impact like the public? Does it affect us in any way? Any is there anything that we could do, you know, to help in that sector? When we're talking about things that farmers use like fertilizer, that's not just what farmers use. People will put that on their lawns too to make sure that we have this nice lush green lawn or nutrients can come from other places, not just fertilizer. It could also be from pet waste. So identifying where everybody is potentially has nutrients being added, you know, you can do a soil test to make sure that the amount of fertilizer you're adding to your yard is the right amount. You can pick up after your pet. You can help with stormwater by putting in a rain garden or doing some other type of what's called green infrastructure. So instead of having a cement driveway or sidewalk or patio, you could do brick or rock, something that will allow the stormwater to infiltrate and 
filter through the soil to capture some of the contaminants that would otherwise go to the storm drain and then be directed into our water bodies. The residential owners or those of us that have yards and we just like the farmers want to keep that water kind of on our properties, right? Like infiltrating on and trying not to let them let it come off our property, right? Exactly. Our soil, which I'm a soil scientist by training, you know, our soil is this great filter. And so if we can allow the soil to do its job to filter out these contaminants, it helps keep our our water bodies, whether it's a surface water or, you know, some surface water, it helps keep those clean. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, keeping things where they belong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It always it always circles back to what you can do in your home garden. And we're going to say the words again, comes back to native plants. We talk about it every podcast episode and I'm bringing it up. But I know a lot of us have had a lot of flooding that has happened with all of the rain that we've had throughout the last couple of months. And, you know, like like you said, Rachel, trying to keep, let the soil do its job, right? Let the plants do their job, but we have to have the right plants there to be able to help make that system work, right? And then we have to manage it the right way. I know it can be overwhelming when it comes to like lawn care. It's it's different at work. I'm like, I know exactly all the resources where we can go to find all this information. But then you go to your backyard and you're like, oh, but now I actually have to do it. But we have the resources there, right? And that information is out there. And there's a lot of great tips and tricks that we have to help, you know, help you calculate how much fertilizer to put on your lawn, the right time to put it on your lawn. I know we've all made that mistake before multiple times. Um, And so trying to figure it out, right? Navigating all of that. I really like the Lawn to Lake resources. They've got some really great material. Fantastic. And we'll link that too in the description so that folks can just click on that and find all of these great resources that we're talking about and saying are out there for you to use. So what steps need to be taken now to reach the goals that are outlined? in the nutrient loss reduction strategy and what can farmers do to help reach those goals? Well, a lot of what Nicole and I focus on are agricultural conservation practices or best management practices. Though there are a lot of really great practices out there, the Illinois Reduction Strategy goes through a review process of these different practices. They have to be submitted for review and then there are certain requirements for these proposals. to be added to the nutrient loss reduction strategy to be considered one of our approved practices. And then these practices are put together in different what we're calling scenarios. So they're different ways of different implementation levels of these different practices to show how we can reach our interim goal and our final goal. So now you can submit these conservation practice proposals on an annual basis for review. And then if there's something that it doesn't meet all the requirements, it's returned to the organization and they can uh, address those things. And so for example, in the 2023 biennial report, which will be coming out in December, uh, we have a new practice that's been added. It's the water and sediment control basins or WASCOBs. So, you know, these are all different ways that farmers can consider what would work within their operation to adopt. And Nicole and I actually just 
completed a fact sheet on these different NLRS group practices, and they include the approximate nutrient loss reduction as well as what it would cost per acre. But really, the biggest part of all of this is the farmers themselves. They are the best way to encourage other farmers to implement these different nutrient loss reduction practices because they're usually the ones that are actually implementing the practices. And so they are our best advocates for these practices. And they can be highlighted in a lot of different ways, whether we bring the farmers on to be part of our uh, nutrient loss reduction podcast or you know, having field days on their farms to highlight and showcase these different practices. There are a bunch of different resources out there for farmers and the general public to get some more information about the nutrient loss reduction strategy or, you know, BMP information. Fact sheets, I mentioned, and I'll mention again, um, we have a podcast and a supplemental blog, you know, farmers can attend or people in general that are wanting to learn more. There's programs that Nicole and I offer throughout our watersheds whether cover crop farmer panel discussions, soil health programs. Nicole has a regenerative grazing group that has a lot of different field days, especially the NLRS original report as well as the biennial reports. So the 2023 biennial report is going to be available this December. And it just, it's a way to um, look at and measure our progress towards reaching our goals. I was just going to ask Rachel, if I was, if I had a farm operation and I was like, yes, I do want to implement some of a conservation practice, or maybe I already do. I already do something like that. Do I work with the USDA? Do I work with someone to help report that um, practice to someone? Do I tell someone? Do how, you know, how do I, how do I do that, I guess. The best way to go about things would be to work with the NRCS and or the Soil and Water Conservation District because these conservation practices are not necessarily inexpensive. And so oftentimes there's cost share opportunities to help offset these practices. And so working with NRCS or your SWCD, they'll be able to help identify and help get you on to uh, these different cost share opportunities. Great. That's great. Thank you. What are a couple examples of some of these conservation practices that farmers could implement? Some examples of some would be like uh, cover crops, bioreact, woodchip bioreactors, saturated buffers, conservation tillage or practicing no-till, mm-hmm. um, terraces, And it's important to note that the practices that Nicole just mentioned, most of them are better for reducing phosphorus or nitrogen, not typically both. However, cover crops are the exception to that. They can be used for both nitrogen and phosphorus reductions. I like that. So it's important to do, right? Look at the resources that you're talking about, kind of research what practice helps with what. Obviously, know your soil know what watershed you're in, know what your area is to try to figure out what the best way, the best way to reduce your, your nutrient. Yeah. And for example, like the bioreactors or the saturated buffers are tied into the tile drainage. So if you don't have tile drainage, then those are probably not practices that you will think about adopting. Well, thank you 
Rachel and Nicole for sharing your knowledge about the NLRS. It's a tongue tie for me, even I can't even say the acronym. So thank you guys for being here today to enlighten us on this topic. We now want to take some time for a special spotlight. This is the point in the show where you get to shine a spotlight on something cool that you saw in nature this month. And I think I'll pick on Erin. Erin, do you want to go first and share your special spotlight? Sure, I can do that. I have been out and about in the last two weeks and been lucky enough to see two bald eagles on different occasions. It's been very exciting. One time we were um, out kayaking and we had one take off and fly right over us. And then I saw one yesterday um, near the confluence of the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers. And I saw one sitting in an old snag, which was really cool to see because you could just see in all its glory. And it's just every time I see them, it's just magnificent. I love eagles. They're amazing. Um, so definitely made my special spotlight for this month. Awesome. Thank you. What about you, Rachel? Well, I uh, got a tour of different conservation practices in, in central Illinois. And the farmer was showing this around. And one of the things that he's done is he started planting native plants along the edges of his field. And his reasoning is just hoping that'll keep the deer out, but it's also great for pollinators. And it was, you know, just really pretty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What about you, Nicole? Uh, earlier this month, uh, I was at Douglas Hart Nature Center um, taking photos with uh, me and Rachel. We had an intern this summer, Sam, and we were taking photos for uh, one of her tasks this summer was to complete a conservation photo library. And while we were there, we, there was a pond that probably had about 20 turtles in it, which was, I thought, awesome. And then we also saw three deer while we were there. So hey. a lot of wildlife. Nice. Right. Well, I, like Erin, went on a kayaking trip and I have a friend who loves mussels and like mussel searching is like his thing. So we're always looking for relic shells. And we were in a river the other day and we saw a what we thought was a plain pocket book mussel, we think. We didn't disturb it. It was a spawning female and she had her mantle flap out that looked like um, looked like a minnow. It had two eye spots and it was just fluttering along. And so I did, it caught my eye, which is the intention, right? It caught it's trying to catch the eye of a of a host fish, uh, right? So I looked down and I was like, oh my gosh, I've never never seen that. So nature is just so amazing sometimes. I, how do you get to that point where this muscle that is just a very simple, well, not, I wouldn't say simple, but a simple creature uh, filters our water, needs a host fish to reproduce and finish its life cycle, has a little, um, you know, lure that lures in fish that looks like a minnow. It's just, I don't know, I guess nature is just unbelievable sometimes. So it was really cool to see that first time I'd seen um, something like that um, over my time kayaking. So I was excited. Very cool. Yeah, it was cool. cool. Well, thank you all again. This has been another episode on the Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Check out next month where we talk with the folks from the Energy Education Council. They're going to talk to us about storm preparedness. <music>